Am I a racist? I think this is a question that a lot of people are asking themselves right now, or more accurately, a question a lot of people should be asking themselves right now. And it's a question that makes us shut down, turn off, ignore the conversation, because obviously, I'm not. We're not. That's ridiculous. But is it? Today, we're going to cover some very difficult topics, and you might get some answers that you were not expecting. You might hear some definitions, some terminology in a different way than you're used to hearing it. And I think that's a good thing. I think we need to learn this terminology so that we're all on the same page, talking about the same thing and not arguing across each other. And you might be wondering why we're covering this on a show that usually covers mnemonics and memory devices and evidence-based study techniques and other learning techniques. But this is an important stage in learning, especially right now. So today we're going to cover racism from the aspect of a medical learner. And for many of us, despite our ethnicity, might come to find out that we are racist and what we can do about that. I think it goes without saying that this episode's topics and conversations are going to reflect the host and the guest's opinions only. They do not reflect any editors, publishers, or any other members that might be associated with this podcast. I do hope you'll take away some very important points, and I hope that we can continue to grow as a society. Welcome to the Medical Mnemonist Podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, take a journey into the top techniques for medical mnemonics, study skills, board exam tips, and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. So today we have Dr. Jill Wiener, who is the host of the Conscious Anti-Racism podcast and a creator of the curriculum with the same name. Jill, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. Me too. I know that I came across your podcast, I think, from a LinkedIn post. And after seeing that, I sort of binged all of the episodes you have out right now. And it's been very informative for me. And I want to share some of these discussion points and topics with the audience, because especially with everything going on right now, it's very important that we all approach topics of racism from a similar standpoint, I feel. And I don't yeah. think that that's usually happening. We're all kind of talking past each other and talking about different things. So hopefully this discussion will be able to clarify some of that. And I know this is kind of interesting because we have a white man and a white woman talking about race. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should clarify who you are and why we're having this conversation. I came to anti-racist work because I practiced hospital medicine for 10 years and then ended up leaving clinical medicine to be a meditation teacher. And so after the 2016 election, I wrote the blog post that was like from my spiritual vantage point. And I just thought it was this amazing post and like white and Indian friends and gay friends really liked it. And a friend of mine sent an email. She's a white woman who's a sociologist. And she's like, I just thought you should know your blog post was really privileged. And she attached an article written by a black man that the title of my article was, we're going to be okay. I mean it or something like that. And it was a dear white people, please stop telling me everything's going to be okay. So she said it was privilege. I got super defensive and angry. And we, her and I, we had a very fraught friendship at that point. It was not taken very well by me, but I don't want to be doing these bad things. If I'm doing something bad, I should learn about it. That's what got me into it. And I'm a white woman learning about my racism. And then I have this public forum, which is my meditation social following, that kind of stuff. And so I started talking about it more and more. I actually read this article recently called There's No Such Thing as a White Ally, which is written by a Black woman. She sent it to me and it's fascinating. And the whole premise of it is 
There's no white ally because it's not a black struggle. White people started racism. It's their problem. Don't rape me and then say you're an ally and helping me get over my rape. It should be white people's fight. It should be something that white people are fighting to dismantle. So the whole notion of an ally, like, oh, I shouldn't be talking about this. This should be something that black people are talking about. It was very interesting. I hadn't heard that perspective from anyone. It's important that we're all talking about it. Am I an expert in what it's like to live in a black body in the United States? No, not at all. But I am an expert in my body techniques that are part of the curriculum. And I'm an expert in my own journey of waking up to the ignorance that I've had through my whole life and using these techniques to help me learn more and to open myself up and really dig into discomfort that comes up as we talk about race. So it shouldn't be on the burden of Black people alone to teach white people about race. Also shouldn't only learn about race from a perspective of a white person if you're a white person, because you're kind of only hearing what you want to hear. So it's my job. I was listening to this great podcast last night because of my proximity to privilege and power. It's my job to be a disruptor. It's my job to be loud and say some of the stuff that other people don't have the privilege of saying because it's not safe for them to say it. And I know something you discuss a lot in the show is the discomfort that a lot of white people feel yeah. bringing up these topics, not being sure how to say things properly or being labeled as a racist. And that's a big fear. But you say to lean into that discomfort because only through getting past your comfort zone are you going to learn more about it. Right. I'll say to anybody who's listening, I am racist. And it's not a personal judgment. It's not you are bad, you wear white hoods, you are in the KKK, you do go to rallies about white power. It's not that. It's this toxic soup that we live in. This Our whole society is racist from its very beginnings before we were even a country. And Black people get internalized racism against themselves because our whole, it's like there's a factory blowing out toxic fumes in your town. And you don't want it to be there and you don't like the toxic fumes, but whether or not you like it or chose to be breathing in those fumes, you're breathing them in and they're affecting the way your lungs function and the way you breathe and the way that you go about your life. So that's what racism is. And so for me to say I'm racist doesn't mean I like want bad things to happen to black people and want would vote for, for anybody or vote against a, a law that would bring more equality and equity but it means that I have been racialized in this system and I have been racialized in a way to think that it's designed to keep white people in power. So we call it white supremacy culture, which freaks a lot of people out. It turns them like shuts them down immediately because they're like, I'm not a white supremacist. White supremacists are like in Richmond, I think, like the rally. Those are white supremacists, but there's this white supremacy culture, which is that basically everything in our society is designed to keep white people in power. It's a pretty powerful concept if you think about it. The press, education, prisons, the legal system, the healthcare system, everything is kind of designed to keep white people in their positions of power and privilege. And I think I can speak for white people. I definitely can't speak for black people. There are going to be white people listening to this who are going to be like, that's not me. Uh-uh. Nope, I'm not. I don't, I don't, I don't. If you're having that reaction right now, I would just throw out a suggestion that maybe like before you start saying all the reasons that you're not, just listen and tune into what your reactions are. But one of the symptoms of white supremacy culture is the right to comfort. It's this need to be comfortable all the time. And white people really don't like getting emotionally uncomfortable. But that's exactly what we need to do. We think we have this right. My own comfort comes before anything else. If a Black person is saying something that I don't like to hear or making me face things about our country's history or my own contribution to it, and I don't feel comfortable, I can then shut down and turn off my engagement in it. But that Black person cannot shut off their engagement in it because they are living in their skin that is causing them to have to be treated in a certain way. So it's really important that as white people, we lean into our discomfort 
And I heard this great quote, uh, one of the women I interviewed, Crystal McCreary, I don't think her podcast has come out yet, but she's on her YouTube interview came out, but she says, every time you lean into your discomfort, you give someone else the space to get step away from their discomfort by one person saying, okay, like what's this discomfort all about? You're then giving someone else the relief of that discomfort they carry with. And it seems like if your initial reaction is to say, nope, that's not me, that's more of a defense mechanism than you being honest with yourself. And if you are displaying this defense mechanism, you might want to investigate why that is. And I know you've interviewed so many great physicians and epidemiologists and other people on your show so far. And there's an allegory by, I think it was Kamara Jones that Mm -hmm. really stuck with me there. It was the allegory of the closed sign. And I'm not going to be as eloquent as she was, but the basis of it for for the audience was if you see only one sign or one side of the sign, it's the open sign, it's one that you flip open and closed, and you've only ever seen that open sign, you don't understand what that closed sign means. You don't understand how it affects you, what it restricts you from. And that's kind of an allegory to display white people in America, especially only seeing the open side of that sign, not really being even knowing that that closed sign is there. So how are you going to understand what it means? Exactly. Like it's the way we as white people are in the world is so very different. The way we're allowed to the freedoms that we have of just existing are completely different. And until you recognize that on the opposite side of the open sign, there's a close and that's what everyone else is seeing. Until you see that, you just think that that's the way life is for everybody. No, I initially wanted to break into this a little slower. I was talking to you beforehand about (laughs) mentioning weights and heights and how being a different weight or height has a great effect on how people perceive you in this country. And this audience (laughs) is probably smart enough to understand what we're discussing here and hopefully are not tuning out just by hearing a few terms that they might not be comfortable with, not be familiar with. I think it might be also important that we maybe clarify a few terms for the audience because you hear things like white privilege, white gaze, white fragility, even the term Black Lives Matter can be a trigger for some people because they take away a certain meaning from the words themselves as opposed to the context of the movement in total. So how can we clarify some of these terms for the audience so we can all speak the same language and understand that when we're talking about something, we're talking about the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I just go one by one through the, the terms that you just talked about. We already talked about white supremacy culture and how it's not what we think of as it. I would never call myself a white supremacist but I absolutely benefit from and play a role in white supremacy culture. So, and I think it's helpful for people, like it was helpful for me to be like, oh, everyone's racist. Like it's not a personal judgment. It's just a, what do you choose to do with it is maybe the personal judgment, but recognizing like all in this toxic fume soup together, black people can be racist because they are internalizing their own stuff and they taught to distrust their own community or there's like, oh, well, at least I'm not an immigrant or at least I'm from Jamaica. I'm not like African-Americans. I mean, there's all this crazy stuff that this is all white supremacy culture getting its hooks into us. So I think white privilege can be thought of as the people who see the open sign everywhere. Like you were talking, quoting from Dr. Jones, the ability to go through your life and not have to think about race about the way your skin looks. I'll share this story. It it horrifies me to even think about it, but I got pulled over um, in 2014, the summer of like all the police really first started to come out. And I was driving in rural Illinois somewhere and I saw this billboard. I decided in my mind, I wanted to write this book about healthy places to eat when you're road tripping or something. I was like very into my meditation journey still. I still am, but I want to write a book about this. And so I like drove by, there was this billboard for this farmer's market. And I was like, I want to remember that. So I picked up my phone to like voice record because I didn't want to be texting. Obviously it's like, you'll just as bad, but in my mind, it wasn't as bad. 
The second I do that, and I never touch my phone when I'm driving, I got pulled over by a white police officer. And he's like, blah, 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 give me your license, registration. He goes back to his car and he's there for like 20 minutes. And I was upset. And I was like, this is taking forever. So I get out of my car. I'm like stretching. I'm walking around outside my car, totally just passive aggressive mad. He comes back over and he says, I said, I just need to tell you the story of why I had my phone. It's so funny. I saw your beautiful countryside and I was very inspired and I wanted to write this book. And and he said, oh, are you a writer? I said, no, I'm a doctor. And he's like, why didn't you tell me that? I don't ticket doctors. Like I would have just not ticketed you because I, you know, I don't want to ever go into an emergency room and see a nurse or a doctor that I ticketed because I want them to like take care of me if I get wounded. So that whole interaction, if you can imagine any of that happening to a Black person now, there's no way any of it. I mean, I would have been shot, at the very least arrested, if not shot, for getting out of my car, for even trying to tell the cop why it was that I was doing what I was doing. And so I share that story because I'm horrified that I didn't even think about it at the time. I was like, I don't want to just like throw my medical license around. Like that seems weird, but I didn't see the whiteness in it, the way that was playing into it. And meanwhile, I have a friend who's a black medical student and he drives with his stethoscope around his rearview mirror and his medical ID hanging from there. So that if he does get pulled over, the cops will see immediately that he's a medical profession and maybe not harm him. So that's privilege. And going through life, not having people look at me twice, I can go up, I can go to a store and people aren't going to think I'm trying to steal from them. And I can knock on a door, ask for help or ask questions. I have to think about stuff as a woman, like my own safety, but there's just a different way of being in the world. And it doesn't mean that white people can't suffer and that white people don't have hard times and that white people don't have poverty, but comparatively to the white experience and the black experience at every socioeconomic level, it's going to be different. That seems to be the common misconception is that white privilege, people say, I'm living in poverty. I just had this happen. I went to jail when I was younger. Uh, Where's my privilege? And that's not what the term actually means. So when bringing that up is discussing a completely different thing. Exactly. And it's not to take away from pain and suffering that white people have encountered in their lives. Life is hard for a lot of people, for most people. And so it's not to take away from that. And it's also not to suggest that it's done intentionally. It can be done intentionally, but I have tried to have a conversation with a woman who responded to an article I'd posted on Facebook, a white woman. And she's like, so we had a phone call, like I was trying to do it all right. And I'm like, once I explain it to her, she'll understand. And she was like, I have never used my whiteness to get anything in my life. That plus 18 other things she said, she just wasn't seeing it and she wouldn't see it. But it's not like like, oh, I'm going to actively try to do it. It's just what happens. It's the norm. And that would maybe bring us to the white gaze thing that you mentioned. So that's G-A-Z-E. A lot of times when I say that, people are thinking you're saying G-A-Y-S. And we're not talking about white gay people. We're talking about the white gaze, which is everything in the world is designed for white people. If you think about the grocery store, there's the ethnic food section. There's the ethnic hair section. Everything else is assumed to be white. There's not white hair section. It's just like the world is white except for these little pockets that are designated. Or if you think about a college designated as, think of it as like, you know, regular white air quoting for anyone who's listening, unless someone says it's a black college or you have to be the first black person to have done this. Otherwise you're assumed that it's a white person. So it's just like everything is children's books. The pictures are always of white people. Advertisements, you, people are starting to think about it more. But when you start to realize the concept of white gaze, it's everywhere. And I've even seen it. Some of my black colleagues on their websites have pictures of white people in their graphics and stuff because it's so pervasive that we almost don't see it. 
Yeah, I was completely blind to this. In fact, a personal experience that happened recently is I've been working on this medical student app for the past two years called Find a Rotation. We won't go into what it's for right now, but the designer created little cartoon caricatures for the homepage. And I didn't even think twice about it. I showed it to my girlfriend at the time. And she said, they're all white. Where are people like me supposed to go? I'm going to look at this and I'm going to turn away from the page. I'm going to go look for another resource. And I'm glad she brought that up because think twice about something like that for the same reason. She'll only read comic books with black characters as the protagonist and not the antagonist, which is usually how they're portrayed. So things that I never thought of before, and it's very common. It's something we all do just because we had that privilege. We have a society that was built that way. And if you think about it in medical training, it's like a 65-year-old Black patient or an African-American woman with this. Do we ever say white? Like we trained to, but we don't. We're trained to use the minority or the identity. And the idea is that it would help us help our brains, like make a differential diagnosis. If it's a Jewish patient or a Black patient or an Asian patient, you know, maybe we're like, oh, maybe they have hep C or hep B, I think is the one, hep B that's endemic or Jewish, there's maybe going to be a higher risk of whatever, uh, I forget the specific things. for Tay-Sachs um, or Neiman Pick, yeah. something like that. Coid for African-American woman is exactly. kind of the so, typical stereotype. So it's like, I think designed in a with good intentions, but we don't do it. We don't say what the race is or the ethnicity is for everybody. Very few people do. And that's white gaze. It's like you assume someone is white or something is for white people unless it's specified. And it, a story also that really illustrated for me right after the 2016 election, there was a, you know, that beautiful picture of Obama that it was a painting that was done of him kind of looking to the side and is like very, maybe it said like, hope that same artist did a bunch of other women. I think it was right around the time of the women's march. There was like a Muslim woman and a black woman and it's like the different faces of what it's like to be a woman. And I remember looking at that being like, I don't see myself there. Like, I don't have one to pick to put on my Facebook profile. And that's like the whole point is like, that's how non-white people go through this world, not seeing themselves represented. And white people just always are represented. So what does that do to your mindset and your, you know, there's so much there. There's so many effects there. But like, I was like, hmm, poor me. I don't know which one to pick. Like, come on, you know? So like that one time in my life, whereas that's the norm. Yeah. And it seems like when the reverse happens and let's say there's a community fund for only black students or only black entrepreneurs, then mm -hmm. the opposite side will come out and say, well, that's racist because you're not allowing white people in. And yeah. I'm not sure it's probably not the exact same there, but similar boat, similar topic, maybe. Well, I think that's like relates to the Black Lives Matter, all uptight about that. The idea is racism is about power. So you can't be reverse racist if you're white because the system is set up to keep white people in power. You could be a black person who has prejudice or biases, or you could be a bigot, but you cannot be racist because racism is associated with the power differential. Ibram X. Kendi, who's wrote some incredible books, a lot of people have read How to Be an Anti-Racist. He talks about, come on, let's give Black people some credit. It's not that they don't have any power at all. So there are going to be some Black legislators and some Black cops, so they can be racist when they're using their power to marginalize people. But for the most part, racism, it's always about power. And for the most part, it's going to be marginalizing people who are not white. It's important to have space as a minority. It's important to have that space away from the constant toxicity of white culture, of the white gaze. So a club that's Blacks only is different from a club that would be whites only because whites are everywhere and whites have access to everything. I think probably the idea would be having Black space is, a, it, we don't want everyone to be like homogenized. It's We want to enjoy the differences in everyone's culture. The idea is not to assimilate 
for black people to assimilate and become more white, the idea is for all of us to appreciate differences in black culture and Latinx culture and different religions and different countries, different ethnicities. So these individual spaces are very important. The same way women are going to want spaces that are just women. I have a retreat that I do every year called the Transform Mastery Retreat for Women Physicians. It's really important to the women that come that it's only women physicians and not other women in healthcare because they need a space to be able to be like their own most vulnerable selves. And then if you're existing in a world that doesn't allow you to be that most vulnerable self out in the open, you need a space to do that. You need a safe container for that. So that doesn't quite get to Black Lives Matter yet, which we can get to, but any comments on that? I do have one question because this is a point that I have not been clear about before. (laughs) And the last time I was told that she can't be racist to me, again, talking about that ex-girlfriend because she's Black and I'm white and I have all the power. And the first time I heard that, it really struck me as weird and didn't comprehend it. And I still don't think I have a firm grasp of it, but I think it might relate to something we might not have been as clear about earlier on is at least based on your conversation with Dr. Jones, that racism isn't individualized. It's as a system. It's a systemic problem. So by saying a person is racist is a little uh, maybe disingenuous under most circumstances. We're just kind of saying the culture in general is as total. It's both. Racism is a systemic issue. It is not a personal choice. I'm a bad person because I don't like Black people and then therefore I'm going to go and do these bad things. It is set up in the system. It is entrenched. It's in every system, like I said, the press, education, healthcare, legal system, political system, all of it. So the book, Stamped from the Beginning, is also written by Ibram X. Kendi. It is horrifying, but it goes through the racist policies, like every racist policy that led up to today. And I'm not even through all of it yet. But there was never a question of like, are Black people worthy on their own, being who they are? It was like, people who were anti-slavery were like, they need to be more with white people. Like if we can just get Black people out of slavery and they can be more like white people, then they'll be better. This is assimilationist mentality rather than everybody is okay being different. The standard isn't everyone should be more towards whiteness. So our country is 100% steeped in systemic racism. Individuals can be racist too. Individuals as part of the collective, but individuals as individuals. I mean, if you are going to hear political figure talking about savages coming from across the border and calling them thugs, that's racist. That's not just systemic racism, that's individual racism. So there's both. But if you are coming from the marginalized group, you can't be racist because race is about power. And that's the system of racism is the power struggle. So again, you can be prejudice and you could be ignorant or closed-minded, but the individual who's part of an oppressed group is not going to be racist. They might be racist in that they have internalized racism a lot of times, internalized oppression that a lot of my Black friends and people I've interviewed have shared with me, but that's not towards white people. That's an internal thing, which is so sad and also very interesting to see how this white supremacy stuff, it affects even people who aren't white. Okay. I know we are going to talk about what about isms a little bit more, mm-hmm. but I just want to toss this one out because it seems relevant to what we're talking about right now. And that would be maybe the situation, I've heard this before, where someone will say, well, President Obama had the power then compared to me. So does that mean he can or can't be racist if the power dynamic for an individual is different? Or is it still really coming down to the systemic and total cultural power? I think it comes down to the systemic total cultural power, but if he was to use his power to marginalize Black people, which some people actually argue that he did. I've heard a lot of criticism from Black people of his presidency, which to me as a white person was like very upsetting. And I was like, no, I love him. Like, and I still love him. But 
Obama made a lot of white people feel really good because we're like, we voted for Obama. We have a black president. We're not racist. Our society, we're over it. We've moved past it. And all it really did was push underground and start to foment and boil all these racist things that people had to kind of keep more hidden. So if he was to use his powers to make laws that made education, you know, decrease education opportunities or redlining, like, which is like a housing policy that has kept a lot of black people out of buying homes traditionally or like historically. So if he were to be enacting policies that were going to be marginalizing black people more, then that's racism. What if he did things that marginalize white people, just hypothetically? (laughs) That's the question. Can you marginalize white people? That's a big question because there's this idea that if we say that black lives matter means that we're saying that white lives don't matter, or we're saying that cop blue lives don't matter. And the thing is, this country, since it was 1619, I think was the first slave ship that came here. Since then, this country has enslaved, imprisoned, passed laws against, disenfranchised, lynched in various ways, Black people. And so for us to then start to say, oh, wait, so it has shown in countless ways that Black lives don't actually matter. To now say that they do matter isn't to say that other lives, like I don't think Black people, I can't speak, I'm not going to speak for Black people. The movement is not suggesting that other lives don't count. It's suggesting that Black lives do count. And until we are able to have Black lives actually matter, then society itself, our liberation as a society is tied to Black lives mattering. It's not saying, oh, I want Black, white people to die, or I want cops to die, or anything like that. It's saying Black lives don't matter. And until we have them matter, then there's no equality. You have to call extra attention to it because there has been 400 years of oppression that needs to be addressed. So I don't know if you saw this one. I'm forgetting the woman's name. Thing about Monopoly. Oh, I don't think I did. Raw, beautiful. It was during the riots after George Floyd. And she was like, if you think about a Monopoly game, the way it's been for 400 years is first, Black people were forced to play and not get paid. Like they weren't able to earn money because they were slaves. So they weren't getting paid for their labor. And then they were able to get paid for their labor. And then things like Tulsa happen where cities are ransacked and burned because Black people are doing too well. They're getting too much power or taking away voting rights or imprisoning people so that they unequal criteria, cash bail systems, all these things that are systemically racist policies against Black people. And now you want us to play. And meanwhile, white people have been saving money. They've been buying homes. They've been passing stuff on to their kids. They've been accruing wealth. And then now you want Black people to come to the Monopoly game and be like, just play like the rest of us play. But there's been these like 400 years of systemic injustices intentionally perpetrated against Black people. So I think we have to remember that like for affirmative action and creating programs that are going to help Black businesses get equity and to get loans, it's because for 400 years, they were either not allowed to get loans, they were not getting paid, they were not allowed to own businesses. If they did get businesses, they were sabotaged in all these different ways. You can't expect someone to just show up and all of a sudden be playing by the same rules as all the white people who have had all of this power for all this time. Does that help clarify things a little bit? I think so. And continuing with that analogy with Monopoly, by the time they're able to gain sufficient resources, a lot of the properties for Monopoly or a lot of the opportunities were already taken. And it's mm-hmm. going to take longer to build that up. And I guess that's where a lot of the discussions about generational wealth come in as well. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm much more of an expert on like dealing with your own discomfort and stuff, but I do think it's important for us. So if I've gotten any of this wrong, please feel free to, to correct me as long as you're someone who's educated in these things and not spewing more racist policies or beliefs. But I think that some people say, oh, white men just can't get a job. White men are just discriminated against now in the workplace because no, no, no. Like white men have been unfairly privileged for 400 years and making things equal does not mean that they're being discriminated against. They're just being treated as maybe, hopefully, one day equal or equitable. You can't get equality without letting go of some of your privilege and power. And just because you've had it for 400 years illegally, unfairly, doesn't mean that you earned it or that you deserve it. I know it's a little scandalous, a little controversial what I'm saying, but it doesn't mean you haven't worked hard and it doesn't mean you haven't, but it's a very white thing to say, I've worked hard and earned everything that I got. I haven't used any of my privilege. I work hard and deserve all of this. That's a very white thing to say and believe. It's definitely something you're going to hear a lot because people don't want it to take away from their accomplishments that they have worked hard from. And they feel like it, I'm assuming some of them feel like it's unjustly biased against them to say certain things or for certain changes to happen now, even though in reality, it is probably just evening out the field a little bit. And we've discussed a couple of whataboutisms periodically here, but there are so many we could discuss. And another one I've seen in the past is like, why is it Black Lives Matter? Why don't you see people with like Hispanic Lives Matter, or Native American Lives Matter, or anything else like that? What is it about the meaning here or the culture here that is different from others. And I don't actually know enough about any of these movements to have an answer for this. So I'm wondering if you might have some insights to share. Sure. I mean, I can do my best with it. I think that BIPOC, the term BIPOC is Black and Indigenous people of color. There's like white people, there's BIPOC, and then there's other people of color. There's Latinx people and there's Asian people and, and people from people from the Middle East, people in this country who are not white, but they're also not Black and Indigenous. The reason that Black and Indigenous is separated is because Black people were brought here as slaves, kept for generations and generations. And then after slavery ended, there was basically this whole other slavery that happened. It was legal slavery after slavery was officially ended, Jim Crow laws, all of these things. That going on, plus police brutality against Black people. Indigenous people, it was genocide. I mean, we came here as settlers or colonizers and killed off all these people. So I think from what I've read, it's sort of like, these are the two most marginalized, oppressed groups. And I think Black Lives Matters, they also agree conceptually that every life in this world matters, but they are having to fight for their own lives, specifying Black Lives Matters, because historically and currently their lives have been shown to not matter. Like Latinx lives matter. I don't know specifically why, except I don't think there's the same level of police brutality. There might be, but I don't, it's certainly at least not being publicized as much. And I don't know as much about that community. So I don't want to say anything that would be misleading, but you're going to see Black people are kind of like the most oppressed in this country. And by fighting for equality and equity in that community, then you're going to see equity for everybody else as well. Got it. Yeah, just not familiar enough with the crime stats or the different cultural aspects either. So if anyone listening to this does know more about it, I'd be happy to hear from you as well. And of course, in an educated manner, not divisive. Right. And there's like trans lives matter, I think that's the thing because the trans community, particularly the black trans community has been even more. It's like there's this thing called intersectionality, which is all the different identities that you bring. I'm a woman, I'm white, religion and where you're from and all these things, those all tie in together. They intersect. 
So Black trans folks have been traditionally even more oppressed and have also been these like incredible pioneers fighting for equality that have done so much groundbreaking work and get overlooked and get even more mistreated in society. So I believe I've heard Trans Lives Matter and that does make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I have heard that one as well. So there are some other groups, maybe even more than we've heard of, just not as popularized right now in the media, but Mm -hmm. actually kind of want to look into that a little more after this interview and see. Have you been thinking about one-on-one training and tutoring at a reasonable price? Well, Prospective Doctor is now sponsoring a limited number of free sessions with me each month. To register, you can go to prospectivedoctor.com slash chase and register for a free 30-minute coaching session. If you decide that you want to use their MCAT or USMLE tutoring services, you can now use the code CHASE10 to receive 10% off of your first $400 spent. Just enter CHASE10 and get your discount now. Okay, so now we have a strong basis for what racism really means in the aspect of our discussion, what some of the terminology means, white privilege, white gaze, white supremacy culture. I guess the next thing really to discuss would be how to combat some of this. What are things that people can do? What are actionable steps? Because I think I even heard this on one of your interviews that the administration of a certain organization was afraid to portray information too strongly towards another race for fear that it would scare away the white administration from getting on board. So it's kind of a, I guess, a balancing act for certain situations where you can only promote so much advocacy for change before you start scaring someone else away. Yeah. And that gets to the symptoms of white supremacy culture. So just like as a med student, you're going to be like, okay, what are the symptoms of pneumonia, the symptoms of tuberculosis or of colon cancer? What are the symptoms of white supremacy culture? How does it show up in life? So you have to educate yourself and there's internal work and there's external work. And it's a few things I think that are important. One is you do the internal work before you start going into external spaces and sucking the energy from those spaces. So you don't want to be like, there is discomfort. I mean, they're reckoning and there's guilt and there's shame and all those things. And those are natural emotions as you're a white person, like digging through your own complicity and all of this and defensiveness and all these things. It's okay to have those feelings. You just don't want to have them in spaces where there are black people who, what happens is that sucks everyone's energy away from the black people and towards consoling the white people. And black people console white people for feeling guilty about things that they've been complicit in that have oppressed black people. So We want to make sure that we're like dealing with our own emotions in a private space or in a space with some trusted colleagues or trainers or facilitators where you can like get through your stuff without triggering or traumatizing people who have already been oppressed. So you don't want to go to your black friend and be like, I'm so sorry, I did everything bad. Like, am I racist? Do you think I'm racist? What have I done? You don't want to do that. So we don't want to put the onus on black people to do emotional labor of trying to make white people feel better about race. They have given more than enough free labor in this country with slavery and beyond. So the internal work you wanted, and that's why I created my curriculum, is it goes through different mind-body techniques to help white people and non-BIPOC people deal with that discomfort that they have that comes up around race, specifically in the context of white supremacy culture, uh, the symptoms of that, which I go into in depth in the course. We talked earlier about defensiveness, the right to comfort. 
So when you see all the different ways that you have, I as a white person, see all the ways that I have been complicit and ignorant, it's one thing to say, just deal with it and get over it. But it's another thing to learn tools to do that. Because if if I've been raised in this toxic culture that makes me not want to be just uncomfortable, it's going to be very hard for me to all of a sudden just say, cool, I'm great with being uncomfortable now. It's tools to face into that and not completely shut down. I think it's also important that white people, when you want to go read and also don't ask black people like, what should I do? Do research. Pretend like you're buying a new car. Get on Google and research best anti-racism books, best anti-racism blog posts or podcasts or whatever. Don't ask Black people to then tell you what you should be doing. That's lazy. Actually, the podcast that just came out today is Bianca Wilson. And she, she talks about that. Like that's her biggest pet peeve is when white people are like, what should I be doing? If you're coming to someone authentically wanting to have a discussion, that's different. But being like, Black person, tell me what to do. That Black person has every right to be like, how about you do some work to figure out what you need to do? There's a ton of resources. There's incredible courses and books and all these things. Support Black people who are doing this. I have a course collaborator, a partner named Dr. Maisha Claiborne, who's a Black woman. We have collaborated to create this. I initially created the course. I'll take some of this onus on me to help White people get less uncomfortable but realize my curriculum is missing something. It's missing the Black perspective. So it's so much more robust now that it's my perspective and Maisha's perspective. And the one on healthcare also has a few other contributors as well. So do the internal work, get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable, recognize that Black people are going to be feeling uncomfortable all day, every day when they're out in the world, and that being uncomfortable is not something that we should be shying away from. And then start learning, learn what your system of power is. If I work in a hospital, if I'm in charge of a curriculum for med students, or if I'm on a committee and I notice that everything is white, like it's all white based or that it's representing black people, then you have power within that framework to do something about it. But you don't want to be doing that in an ignorant way. Actually, that's something I discussed in my other show, The One Minute Preceptor. I think it was episode 2.1, Dr. Nicole Washington. There were some resources going around at the time earlier this year when a lot of people were looking for resources. There are long compilations of books and movies and blog posts. So maybe I can put those in this episode show notes as well as a resource that people can turn to. And one other thing is you're seeing a lot more conversation of this specifically in medicine because, well, we know from the board of most hospitals or the deans of schools or anyone in a position of power within the medical field, there are relatively few people of color in those positions. So it seems like even in medicine, this is not just for the administration side. Obviously, there are patient care issues too that are more well-known. And even that research article that's been going around a lot that med students believe that Black patients felt less pain. Mm -hmm. So this is something that we have to tackle within the medical system as well. It's a systemic problem within the cultural systemic problem. Yeah. Not even in healthcare. It's like, especially in healthcare, the more you look for it in healthcare, the more you're going to see evidence of systemic racism. It's really, really bad. So, and when we were talking about your audience, I'm like, I think this new generation of whippersnappers, like they're, they're onto it, you know, they see it and they want to make change and they want to do better. And I think that there's real change that needs to be made in healthcare. And if you think about taking care of sickle cell patients, it's so, 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 so entrenched in all these horrible racist ideas and mistreatment and distrust. There's so much that can be done in our healthcare system as well. So besides the resources that we're going to put in the show notes here, and obviously there are things like hashtag white coats for black lives and other things that students can get involved in to learn more and to be more proactive. What are some other resources you would recommend for someone trying to learn more or see what the next step is to take advantage of the situation and help? 
I think there's some of the books that I've liked. The first one I read was called But I'm Not Racist by Kathy Ober. She's a white sociologist who is a gay woman who was doing all these diversity trainings and all her black colleagues were like, you've got a really big problem. And she's like, no, 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 but I'm gay. Like, I don't have diversity problems. So she ended up going on her journey and this book is about that. So anyone who's like, but I'm not racist or wanting to know about reverse racism, that's a really good place. That's where I started. But I think there's also a lot of other great books um, written by black people, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. There's a book called How to Be Less Stupid About Race by Crystal Fleming. It's really good. If the title intrigues you, great. Don't let it stop you if it's pushing you away. Totally eye-opening book. And then listen to podcasts. You can check out my podcast. That's free. There's a great activist named Leslie Mack who does this program called Allies in Action, which is a retreat that I did in March of 2019 that got me started. That started my whole conscious anti-racism curriculum. That was my thesis project for that activism weekend. I think her next one is coming up November 4th. So check out lesliemack.mac.com or Allies in Action. Showing Up for Racial Justice is a website that they have organized branches all over the country in different cities. And so that's a great place you can get involved. You could reach out to your diversity and inclusion officer at your hospital or your med school where you work, because there usually is someone in that role, typically someone who's black and typically someone who is often not paid extra for that, but just kind of expected to be doing that work. So you can ask if there's like projects or studies that you can work on. I have two versions of the course. One is for healthcare. So you are welcome to check that out as well. I think it's great, obviously, but there's so many other resources out there. It's just a matter of getting started. And then for those that want to find out more about your curriculum or your podcast, where can they find your materials? If you go to jillweiner.com, so J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R.com, there's a section there under anti-racism. They can find the podcast there. And the podcast is just conscious anti-racism. So you can find it on podcast hosting forum. And the course is called Conscious Anti-Racism for Healthcare. That's something you can do as well. It's self-paced. It's online. The link for that is going to be on the website. But I think I gave that to you as well. Yes, I do have those and they will be in the show notes as well. Well, Dr. Jill Wiener, I want to thank you so much for coming on and discussing a very difficult topic, a very uncomfortable topic. Hopefully we got the audience a little uncomfortable and hopefully they took away as much useful information as I have. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And, and I think it's important. It absolutely belongs on a medical podcast where there's a lot of med students. And the more we're learning about it and facing it, the better off our society is going to be and our patients are going to be and our colleagues are going to be. So um, thank you for, thanks for inviting me and being a fan of the podcast. Don't go anywhere just yet. I have one more thing to mention. Luckily, Dr. Jill Wiener was kind enough to give us a student discount for her class, her curriculum on anti-racism, which normally priced at over $500. We can now use the code MMP150, which will drop the price down to $150. This is a student-only discount. We are on the honor system here, so please do not use this code if you're not a student. Otherwise, the code might be taken away for other students desiring to take this course, but not in the financial position to pay the full price. Again, go to jillweiner.com and type in the code MMP for the Medical Anemonist podcast, 150, and get your discounted price on the anti-racism curriculum. If you haven't kept up with the latest episodes of the One Minute Preceptor, go subscribe now. It's full of useful clinical education facts, preparation advice, and news updates from leaders in clinical medicine. So find the One Minute Preceptor on your podcast of choice. The Medical Mnemonist podcast is powered by MedSchool Coach. To access MedSchool Coach services, including USMLE tutoring and residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. 
Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.